0: In the pandemic, books were not socially distant from us. It was one of the comforts for a lot of people. There were books to read and books to follow and books to look forward to. One of the strange things about reading, although it's done silently and it's done alone most of the time, that you want to share books, that if you like a book, you want someone else to read it, that you love the idea of a book that is in a way being, being part of the community or part of a community of readers. With that in mind, the art of reading is a way of bringing readers together. It's a way of choosing books that I think people might like because they have given me a lot of pleasure. And having a discussion about these books and bringing people together so that we all know that it's not just that reading is a form of pleasure, which it also is, but it's an art. It's actually a way for us to engage intellectually and imaginatively with words, with sentences, with what writers have done. And um, so for that reason, um, I wanted to share these books that have mattered so much to me. I I want to start by asking you a question that is on the minds of anyone who has been reading this book. What are we going to do about Vincent de (laughs) (laughs) Courcy O'Regan? Could you answer this, please? Yeah.
1: So for me personally, uh, I I don't particularly like Vincent. And I... I think Agnes can do better. Um, I think there's a, a lot of things. I think Kate O'Brien is really interesting in how she there's such a parallel between Reggie and Vincent that both of them are kind of stunted emotionally and spiritually uh, and imaginatively, and so and so that kind of regression is sort of symbolized with the relationships with mothers. You know, that it seems like neither of them can can finish or 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 move on. But I think maybe what disturbed me about Vincent a little bit was um, there's a discussion about when he first was courting uh, Marie Rose and the intensity and the passion and how it consumed him. And you wonder, is is his love for Agnes just a repetition of self-indulgence? And his detachment is, you know, he he keeps seeing himself outside himself as as if he's watching a play and um, the kind of formative things that are happening. It almost, I felt like sometimes that he himself is posing, even though he says people accuse him of that. But there was one thing that really bothered me, and I thought that there was a hint of violence or a hint of some kind of, not not necessarily physical violence, but how he treats um, Marie Rose. And I'm just... A line um, on quite early in the book. Um, But his wife had to suffer the hysterical reactions from this outward insolence, as well as the deeper and more cruel vengeance, which he had no will to practice on her, but which decreasing self control released in spite of him. And you're wondering, what what is that exactly? You know, what's happening that we don't know. And, why, and Marie Rose wants to come home and she also seems to be regressing and wanting to be back in the fold of family and back in her childhood room with her sister. Um, so, I, yeah, so I'm not sure. Vincent did something about himself <laughs> for us. But, uh, you know, and even that act at the end, I, you know, it would be interesting to see what people thought about how this book ends. Um, because I know there's a lot of, conflicted feelings about even Kate O'Brien second guessed herself at the end of her at the end of her career about she thought it was her best book but wasn't sure it was the right ending or not.
0: It must have been really hard to write because how far I mean if you're going are we giving the plot away by the way?
1: Don't do have to everyone is.
0: Yes, right. yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, but there might be someone who's on two pages away. And you think, oh my lord. You just destroyed my day. So, so, I mean, it must have been tempting to have him put the gun down and walk back into the house, surely. I mean, what would you do?
1: So, so uh, what like, I, I was just reading um, in my version, Dear Jamadin has the afterword is, is in it, and she sort of feels that the ending is melodramatic and maybe not necessary. And I think a lot of other uh, critics have, have thought about that, but I think Kate O'Brien. I don't know that it was so much that she was. I think she was sort of looking at a kind of dead end, what what Irish society in the bigger picture was doing to people, and the kind of claustrophobia and insularity, and maybe even that the relationship. I, like I'm thinking about Agnes, like she falls in love with her brother-in-law, and um, you just sort of wonder has she really gotten to see many men, yeah, uh, sure. like, you know, in The Tempest with Miranda, like, who's never seen men, humans, and, like, a oh, brave new world that has such creatures in it, and, like, you know, tis new to thee, because, like, you know, she hasn't seen anything yet. And I g- had that feeling about Agnes, like, that she, her, that society and the, the way in which women are kind of forced into a kind of domesticity, you know, these domestic spaces, that she really hasn't had a chance to meet other men, because the parties are all over, her mother is dying, and they're all in this stasis. So I, thought, I, I just wondered if Kate O'Brien, that that having Vincent take his own life, um, at the end was sort of talking about, in a bigger picture, a kind of dead end. Um, and some people say, well, what are the alternative plot options? You know, the marriage plot has, you know, this is a failed marriage plot or romance plot. Um, what, what are the other options? But I think maybe she was
0: sort of maybe pointing out something else. I wonder if that, what you're saying about her not meeting many men, her not seeming to have many options, is actually key to the book in that this house is an island. It isn't as though there's a society. What Keller Brown is trying to do, no one has really tried before, which is to create a novel of the Irish upper middle classes who are Catholics and uh, to give the Catholicism an enormous amount of force in the book, but also to give their morals and manners a sort of treatment that Ibsen might have given his characters, or John Goldsworthy in England. In, in other words, the entire Irish 19th century, if you look at the novels, is filled with, if there's a mirror, it's broken. If there's, if there's a window, someone horrible is looking in the window to see what they can do. You know, In other words, in William Carlton, Wild Goose Lodge, of course the house is going to be set on fire. You know, in, in, um, in Mariah Edgeworth's, you know, in, um, in um, Castle Rackrend, you know, you know, it is that the entire place is going to ruin and, and the nasty one is going to take over. That There's no chance that in an Irish novel of the 19th century you could have a Jane Austen house in which there's a house, a garden, parkland, and then a vast amount of valuable agricultural land bringing in 10,000 a year. And in which, you know, which it's which possible for, um, you know, one house to visit another and have a dance without someone kicking someone, insulting <laughs> someone, using very bad language, or deciding to burn the place down, or get drunk. And so that she, she, Kate O'Brien has nothing to work on except an English tradition where, you, you know, it, it's filled with ser- servants, and, you know, but there would be another house nearby of the same sort of people who would visit regularly and would have visitors and suddenly Mr Bingley is in, you know, would, would, would rent a house nearby and Agnes would be told there's a, there's a new man renting the house nearby. And so the two houses could merge. But in this book, there's, there's an incredible sense of loneliness, of utter isolation which begins, I think, as a political isolation, that I hesitate to say it, and I'm not, I didn't say it, deny it later, but I wonder if, if Kate O'Brien, writing in 1934, is trying to work out how did Finnegale get like that? <laughs> <laughs> you know, how did, who, who became Fine Gael? And, um, you know, that, 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 that idea of a growing Irish middle class, in other words, that Theresa, if, if she's, this is 1880, and if she's, say, 60, has to have lived through the famine. And what Brennan is desperate to do is to keep all this misery, this Irishness. There's no one called Mick. There's no one called Murphy. You know, he's it, it, called Vincent de Gorsi or O'Regan, for God's sake, uh, and Nurse Considine. You know, even Mulqueen, which is a Gaelic name, but nonetheless, it's, in English, it sounds grander perhaps than it is, but that, that, that there is a sense of trying to create a sort of Catholic grandeur and you can feel the strain I, I I don't know if you if you can I mean can you feel the strain that, I, that I'm talking about in that
1: yeah I mean I guess for me to, re- reading it um, you know I do have that sense of like the Jane you know Austin drawing room and the the you know the um, and an incredible isolation I mean Agnes talks about um she has to think about Vincent because she can't she doesn't have her own thoughts she doesn't have her own things to think about I and mean, you you know how how isolating that is, but I also like. I guess from in in terms of the the outer world or her effort to show us this like Catholic Catholic middle class and it to me it just seemed really um, destructive, uh, and to and maybe everything is dying from the very beginning of the book from the opening moments um, the the town is shrouded in, in mist. Um, there's an elegiac air that carried a shroud of mist is one of the lines. You just get the sense of um, there's something already dead even before it's ever really actually happened. Um, the, the world seems empty. Um, and the re- like. I loved so much of this book is about um, this tension between between the visible and the invisible, because nothing actually happens that much. So much is like in the heads. And so, and I guess maybe that reinforces our sense of their inability to act or to bring change or to like affect something. They all just seem to be, uh, I love that, that chapter in the book two, where Agnes is eating grapes at yeah. the start. And then you have the whole thing at the table and all the things that people are, the cruelties and judgments that are being made and the deep desires. And then it comes back to she's eating grapes. <laughs> you are like the, the whole chapter has happened. Yeah,
0: it circles around back to it's the, the grapes. All, yeah. You know, Yeah.
1: The, the, the internal lives versus the, the, constraints of the, yeah. the yeah. external yeah. world.
0: I, I think the book is also, um, uh, um, it represents Kate, the ambiguities and the tensions within Kate O'Brien's own imagination and her own experience in life. In other words, that she was fascinated by religion that she wrote a book about St. Teresa of Avila, that she loved that Spain, that Castile, that was filled with, with the, uh, almost the smell of the Inquisition, and that she, uh, her aunts were nuns, and she wrote a book called Presentation Parlour about them as nuns. And yet she herself was a lesbian, and that she, she had a whale of a time, you know, um, and, and she was also a, a great bohemian figure, and that those two things in her you know, you know, um, didn't merge. They, they were in conflict And there there is a sense in the novel sometimes of a great mischief, which you feel in Ulysses sometimes, so that Joyce is really enjoying himself, making a a feck of things that other people think are really serious. And for example, so you'd get, let's set a novel, for example, her novel The Land of Spices, let's make it about a nun, a very powerful reverend mother, a very serious figure, about her spiritual life. But let's go back in her childhood. This is why the book was banned. When she goes back in her childhood and none remembers that one day she came home early from school and she found her father in his study. Ketterbine loves fathers having studies. Mm-hmm. I mean, did anyone here's father have a study? And, and um, then that, um, that she goes up to the study and she finds, she comes in very quietly and finds her father and this other man in the embrace of love. <sighs> And you go, wow, the nun. And um, of course, the center, someone underlined the embrace of love, sent it to the censorship board, who instantly banned the book for those words, the embrace of love. And here you have okay, we're going to set it over these three days, um, all, which we call Halloween, but they call All Souls, All Saints, and the Eve of All Souls. And let's give the son syphilis. And let's have the daughter. Crazy about her sister's husband. I mean, let's just cause as much trouble in this household as we while going, Mass is going to be said constant in the bedroom. The, br- the brother is a priest, the sisters is a nun. You know, there's constant benediction, there's a constant confession. You know, um, people are always praying. But in the middle of the whole thing, the, there are these two facts that won't leave the novel alone. And that she's having sort of a tremendously good time. We're not bringing the two things together, but but actually trying to tear these souls asunder, with on one hand their sort of religiosity, and on the other hand their their extraordinary desires or their or their sort of sexual presences. In nineteen thirty four, in Ireland.
1: Yeah, I, I love the I love how she said it over those three days, like structurally. And in fact, I. You know, I don't know if it was typical, but like the first chapter that I was like, is this supposed to be like the you know the glorious mysteries or something that you felt like you were like re- you know, the pace of it? But I um when when Teresa is praying and she's thinking about it being the eve of of um All Saints, um she starts trying to do the glorious mysteries and immediately just starts thinking about Halloween and how fun it was. I and, and I love that there's this kind of like this little kind of pagan or, you know, this other force that that is an undercurrent. So there's like, you know, they have all this like ritual and structure, but there's something else breaking through, which is like desire and, and the yearning body and all these things that the church at this point in our, you know, at the time that it was written in, in 1934, you know, was all that was about to, you know, that was the thing that had to be controlled and things like motherhood and marriage had to be, you know, enshrined in the constitution and, you know, the church was about controlling the body. And I, I, Dr. Curran, that's his whole thing. Uh, isn't Catholicism great? Because, it, you know, it puts the human animal, you know, it checks them, keeps them in their place. It stops desire. And so I, there's this tension all the time between like, you know, control and want, you know, which I think she does really, really Brilliantly.
0: Yeah. I wonder if, if part of the power of the book arises from the quality of passion in the book, that, that that the levels of feeling are so strong, so high, and that you must con- you must control them all the time from moving into melodrama, and being and, and remaining you know within the possible. So that, there's a real problem, I think, for any novelist putting a woman in bed for all the novel. Like, <laughs> will she get up? Will she die? Like what will she do? What will she? She's in bed, and she's in bed. And, um, but by having her having one thing only on her mind, how is Reggie going to live if I die? And by making that into a single passionate feeling that she, want, that, that she has in order to keep alive, that is why the woman is in the bed in the novel, because she is deeply in, engaged with this idea. And I think that moves us over to Agnes, who is, who, whose passion for uh, Vincent is really enormous, and, and, and is, obviously it's irrational, but, it's, but it means a great deal to her. Well, I think what you're saying about Vincent to her, there's an element of brutality in, in, in his feelings always, but hers for him, there, there is an element of something pure and serious, and that we, we must take seriously as readers. In, in is, is that right? Yeah,
1: like I... There's so much given over to it. And I I think because we are inside her consciousness so much, like we do, it's an omniscient narration that goes in and out of the different characters. But I never think we are as deeply in a character as we are with Agnes in terms of her real internal conflict. And because she all the time is trying to negotiate that and question it so she, you know, she goes to confession and I'm like, whoa, she tells the priest, you know, I fancy my brother-in-law. And, you know, you're just like, you know,
0: that's a good limit. You
1: know, and he like accepts it and sort of, you know, and then his line about like, you know, this, this is about, you know, that's just finite. And, you know, you could have eternal, you know, eternal love, you know, and. I love when later on in the book she's just like, you know, it's pretty difficult to do that when you got when when you, you gave us this form, you know, like we're, we're we have bodies and so that's all well and good, but we have no idea how to negotiate ideas or eternity when we have our human bodies that want. Um, and so, like, I think that we that with Agnes we feel the her the intensity of her passion because we hear her whole. Like self-admonishment, the self-loathing, inability—you know—to control it, and even when she goes out and meets him that night, it, and I don't know, you're like, no, you're like don't, don't <laughs> like go, don't. Yeah, inside. it's yeah. it's messy.
0: Yeah, the boss is going to be watching from the window.
1: <laughs> yeah, she's already she like and actually because I'd love to talk about. Um,
0: oh yeah, we're, 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 gonna all, all, we're coming to her. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. 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 Um, but, but and that moment, because I know a lot of people like, in fact, Deirdre Madden mentions just that that kind of moment, that embrace, and and um, between the two of them, where they're like, you get the sense of like they're they're united. I I I think maybe I was a little bit more, like, oh, it, whoa. because what what are they going to do? Like, you know, conduct an affair for the until it where, peters out. I think. It, his suggestion of like that they take off together and you kind of know that these aren't really available options, um, particularly because she's carrying with her all of her Catholic sensibility, um, which is to, which she is the servant of her family, her, her entire life. I mean, when, when Marie Rose says to her, you need to get that floorboard fixed. I was like, ah, You know, she's doing everything. Agnes is doing everything. And the sister comes home and is like, you know, there's a creak in the floorboard. You should get that fixed. You you kind of start to feel that her frustration.
0: I I think for any Irish novelist, there's always a problem what to do with dialogue. That that if you try and put too much Irish flavour into dialogue you're actually the reader, especially the Irish reader, sort of cringes and thinks, could you just get on with the story and stop trying to make us, you know, make Irish people talk like, like people never do. And um, one of the things you can do is you can use this for after thing, you know, in, in, in making the past tense. There's, oh, he's after being sick. And that's Irish usage. And if you do it once, don't do it twice. And it's interesting to watch here that the, the characters here, the, some, of the, some of the conversation, the dialogue, especially that last love scene, is so stilted. They, they really talk with, uh, as though what Yeats talked about, saying that his just used a living speech. This seems like a, they speak in a sort of dead speech that Kate O'Brien is giving them, having, having sort of lost Limerick. That where, are we in Limerick? Could we possibly be in Limerick? And there are a few interesting moments where the older generation where Treaser, for example, um, in one moment says, uh, nonsense, it's too much quiet to have, run down, let you. Run down, let you, and I can hear. I can hear her, but, but Agnes doesn't do it, and um, her other daughter, Mary, um, Mary helped me. Um, Mary Rose. Mary Rose doesn't do it, and there's another there's another thing. I'm, I just I marked it a few times um, where she says, um, um, "I'm afraid I'm late. I'm sorry, mother. It's to your father you should be saying that, and he waiting for his breakfast, I suppose." I don't know how this house is going at all these times. And you think, oh, I think I know where she got that. That's called you know, an, an Irish writer's version of Irish speech. And then, but then I think the golden rule for Irish writers, the goal to please obey this rule, is never let a Brit into your novel if your characters are Irish. Just don't <laughs> let an English person in. If you can let a Yank in, it's not so much trouble. But if you let an English person in, you're going to have to immediately start dealing with the difference of speech the difference of sound, the difference of temperament, and the sort of funny watching each other uh, as though across a great divide. And I mean, when Sir Geoffrey Bartlett Crow comes down on the train, like he crosses Ireland on a train, you just think, Oh, my God, uh, how much were they paying him? I mean, how do, you, how do you get a doctor like that to come across? So um, this, was, this was not the first time Sir Godfrey had condescended to travel his, his, his eminent opinion as far as Dublin. And, of course, where he asked to attend any of the great historic houses scattered about the district called the Pale, he would not hesitate to pursue his guineas even there. This is a kid of having immense fun, pursue his guineas even there. But to plunge right into the murderous and stormy South. And this is even before Bail Blaw. like the murderous and stormy South, to stay in the home of a real Irishman, a Catholic, to attend the wife of a small town merchant and waste 24 hours, perhaps encountered danger in so doing. That at first blush had seemed an absurd suggestion. <laughs> is, she's really enjoying bringing him in because of course he then thinks Mary Rose is, is so exquisitely beautiful. And of course there's a wonderful moment where um, <laughs> poor old Agnes has to worry about the sort of quality of the wines and the cigars that um uh, giving some tranquilizing advice to her father on the subject of wines and cigars because the englishman is going to <laughs> really notice and so there is a, an element of social comedy in the way the more queens are putting themselves forward to the world and the world being the dublin doctor and the eminent <laughs> brit doctor uh, the, it, it the, so there, there is a world outside let in but it's let in only to inspect the house it isn't it isn't anything else really is and
1: it? I, I um Sir, just that moment um, Sir Godfrey says um in just just a little bit after that there, he Mary Rose says that uh, Marie Rose says that um Agnes is one of the new types um that she's disillusioned, and then he said, but I thought that Ireland suffered no new types. I thought it was the sanctuary of the old ideal feminine, so it's like he wants to come down the country and see you know the Irish Colleen, you know. It's exactly how, in all her purity, and these stereotypes that the, mm. that even the English are bringing over about the Irish mm. uh, ideal Irish woman. Mm. Um, I thought I actually thought Kate O'Brien was having a lot of fun with all the male. I mean, yes. Doctor William, like William Curran, is his ideas about women. Um, you know, basically to despise. You know, he basically despises women, um, and. You know, he would—he wasn't going to marry a beauty because, you know, then there might be someone more beautiful. And so he doesn't, that would be just too much for him. You know, I mean, it, so you have this like picture of civility, like, you know, that he's this reasonable, rational, he's the doctor. And we keep getting these lines like the doctor in him. And then you hear what he says and you're like, the, are we just absorbing this and not like going like, what? You know, his attitudes. um. And so his attraction to, for Agnes is a little bit hard. Um, like, I don't doubt that he loves her, but I think he, it's his, oh, the, when he's abroad, um, he likes to enjoy himself. But when he comes home, he's continent. Now, I actually looked that up. Like, am I, am I reading this correctly? Um, you know, so he, he likes to have a good time when he's away. But when he's at home, um, he believes in in being, you know, he believes it's a good thing, and so you're kind of like, okay, um, what what is she? She's having a. I think she's having a go at the kind of men that she probably saw sitting around a table of an evening, and is making a caricature of of them.
0: Um, The father um, Danny, we, we don't see him much in Irish literature, but I think we do see him in Irish life. He's one of those fellows who just sort of sits there and he often <laughs> has a proverb to add to the whole occasion. He loves his wife, he loves his daughters, he loves God and he, he's worried about Captain Boycott and he's puzzled by Parnell yeah. and he gets all this money obviously from land which he must own but he really is, really is a pretty comic, it, it, it's a, it's a it's a picture worthy of Jane Austen, isn't it? Of the sort of ineffectual father sort of sitting
1: there. The fat Sabine man, no, the only reason she recognises the, the kind of corpse of Teresa in the bed is because of the fat Sabine figure beside it. And you're like, whoa. You know, he's kind of been reduced to like, you know, something quite... Um, <laughs> pathetic? So, so pathetic? Pathetic, yeah. And he is. I mean, the, those lines where he says, oh, Teresa, speak to me, please, because all she talks about is Reggie. And, like, the, the way she's displaced her husband for the love of her son. So I think he... I, I've, I think of all the men in the book, I probably have the most empathy for, for him. For, for For Danny right. McQueen. Um, I think he... Um, you know, he's lost something and, you know, he's trying to do the right thing and be good to everyone. And I, but, he, but he's ineffectual.
0: But she is, isn't she, Kate brown fascinated by painting these men um, in very, in, in very grey tones? In, 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 she won't give them much colour and she won't give them, I think, a, a lot of texture or the same sort of ambiguity and presence that she gives, for example, Agnes or even trees in bed.
1: Good, yeah, and it's kind of incredible, like, as you were saying earlier about Teresa is in bed for the dura- duration, and, like, she never, like, I guess this is a book where everything's truncated, like, lives are truncated in some way, like, she doesn't even get to, to die. And I mean, I don't think she dies. No, in no the she book. doesn't, know. So, no, no. like, it, even that doesn't happen, and, and the way, like, Reggie can never finish the Chopin piece, like, every, it, like it, no, no one's ever finishing, you know, anything. Um, but she, in the end, when Agnes looks at her face and sees her mother's happy and more alive than she is, there's more life in her mother. And in fact, Nurse Cunningham says that as well—that there's still a lot of life force in Teresa. But Agnes is sort of spiritually dead, and I mean, those are her—that is her last moment. We we finish with Agnes at that point, mm. where she says, um, "I'm dying." She she and. And then I think she says, oh, Vincent darling." Mm. That, that might be the last line. But, but, and, then, and then Vincent gets the last mm. chapter.
0: Mm. In, in Mariah Edwards' novel, Castle Rackrent*, written at the beginning of the 19th century, it's narrated by Thady. And it's about the, the, the decay of the family of the Rackrends, who are a great sort of landlords, uh, Protestant aristocrats who live in London, come and go. But we watch slowly as Jason, Thady's son, who's a Catholic, is slowly building up money, enough capital, and he's going to get the house. He's going to get Castle Rackrent. So the novel's going to show in three generations how this family decays, but there's someone else waiting. And here we have exactly the same story being told. This really is the last season that these people will be able to live in this house in this way because something new is coming. Because bringing a nurse into a novel is very good because a nurse is oddly classless. If she is, if he or she is working in, in a house, in other words, she's in. She has her own sitting room. She eats mainly in her sitting room, but she can come to the main table. That 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 she has a sort of a, 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 a two positions socially. She's almost a servant, and she's almost one of the family. And um, so that um, we watch her slowly taking over, and we realize by the end of the by the end of the season, by by the following year, she will be running this house, and Agnes will be out. Her sister will no longer be able to visit. and The father will be even more ineffectual in the corner. And the mother will be dead. But the person who will prevail is a person in a class below these people who comes in with nothing except her skill as a nurse. And so we're actually watching social change.
1: And I think what's interesting, because Under My Cloak, the book that precedes the, the first novel, Kate Bryan's first novel, is actually the story of Teresa Considine's family from, horse, from being horse... Rustlers basically to becoming merchants, middle class merchants. So you know, we're, so we see them their rise and maybe you know something that's uh, preceding the, their fall. I, I thought the treatment of Nurse Cunningham was so interesting because she's sort of detested. Um, Agnes detests her, um, and the feeling slightly mutual, I think. And I, th- I think the the moment where Nurse Cunningham. Looks at Agnes. You know, it's, it's one moment where we see one woman looking at another woman and sort of taking her down. Like um, she's too lanky; men don't like that. She's judging her with the way that men, with the eyes of that men would look at her, um, which I thought was interesting. But I ultimately, she's she has no social prospects, um, and I I kind of. Like I know she's going into a loveless marriage, but she is. Um, I didn't see her as uh, as villainous as Agnes sees her. Yeah, or
0: No, I don't think the reader does. Kind of, yeah. yeah, yeah. You kind
1: of get it, you know, yeah. that, that this is her chance, and she's actually offering solace, and she knows the circumstances, and there is a kind of sacrifice in a way, but. She has no security, and this is her chance to have some level of...
0: Yeah. I mean, I think we see that in, say, Pride and Prejudice, where Mr. Collins, who's a complete idiot in the novel, but yet the friend of Elizabeth actually marries him because she has no other choice. She's nowhere else to go and puts up with him because that is what she must do in order to survive. So there's a sense of that Nurse Cunningham is sacrificing herself, but Brown has very cleverly shown that the alternative... Is awful if she's to move from house to house in, in in these barren rooms, and that and that at least with Reggie, well, with Reggie she gets to control the entire enterprise, doesn't she?
1: Yeah, because he because he's already infantilized. I mean, he can't. He he's he's a baby, and he just needs to be taken care of. And he, you can see his movement towards the very end, his acceptance of his mother's going, um, is because because somebody else has t- taken the the. Puppet strings, and he's quite happy for that to happen. Um, It's all the characters, like they all seem somehow to not, they seem to be regressing uh, rather than progressing. Not Nurse Cunningham, because she's, you know, thinking on her feet, but there's something about the Mo Queens um, that seems to be regressive or bending back.
0: Yeah. Um there, there's, at the centre of the novel, you feel there's Kate O'Brien writing and that she's enjoying her own prose style, her own wit, her own way of being able to judge people or let people off the hook. There's a moment at the opening of the fourth chapter where I just got immense pleasure. Luckily, someone soon came into the room as I was reading and said, listen to this, listen to Kate O'Brien on the arrival in the room of Canon Considine <laughs> and, you know, that she will begin although... Although the magenta buttons, which indicated his ecclesiastical status, had only adorned Canon Considine's black silk stock for seven months, their wearer had the look of a man born to a higher office than they allowed, one whom the gaiters and purple of a bishopric would well become, and who, though for intellectual reasons unlikely to be elected cardinal, would in physique have adorned the sacred college. I just can see her really, really realising, I have a beautiful sentence coming
1: and it's going (laughs) to be about a
0: Canon Considine and and, and there's a I I felt very much I don't know how you felt about that very last look she shouldn't go out in the garden and she should leave him alone out there he's fine out there and uh, it's it's November he's going to get a cold and um but this but the scene between the two of them which goes on in my view for too long reads to me like an opera um like a libretto for an opera like two lovers in the middle of a long set of arias and duet you know and duet sounds that it doesn't sound like real dialogue to me, but heightened dialogue, dialogue written for music. And um, of course, she wrote a novel at the end, the last novel, as music and splendour about opera singers in Paris, and that sort of sound of, of uh, you know high singing interested in her. But I did feel that with that last sequence, especially the bit you talk about when he says, "Let's go to Greece. Let's have children walking the hills. Let, let's be free with the Adriatic or the Mediterranean." Just think, you think you're singing in an opera yeah. my boy you know what I mean?
1: <laughs> yeah. but i i think that that comes back to that that performative thing like I, so maybe that's why it f- feels slightly of all the moments the most like melodrama you know because it feels slightly performative or you know that he's playing the idea of the lover you know and um and so is she to a certain extent I'd, i it's not, either, it's not that I mind love scenes. I just found it, it um, slightly over, like you said, maybe over the top a bit. Um, but there's also the separation of, of time as well because maybe we don't exactly talk like that anymore. And so the, some of the dialogue feels stilted for those reasons as well. Well,
0: I mean, it's 1934 thinking of 1880. 18, yeah. I mean, I mean, how did you feel about that?
1: Yeah, so I think, I love that she was, I feel like she's writing this book at this really interesting moment in Ireland, you know, at this frightening moment in Ireland where, you know, the, where there was fewer and fewer options for women and that she puts it back into the 1880s. Maybe, you know, it, it was a way of talking about, you know, what was happening right then and that kind of, that insularity and, and the impact that that would have on lives. And I like I I like you know I, when I think about Kate O'Brien and her life and just thinking about even in terms of novels and plot plots that are available to women um, like w- marriage plots basically you know the the romance plot she, I mean, this is written like a romance and the romance plot is ends in marriage um, and Kate O'Brien at that point was living with another woman in. We assume in a relationship in England, um, and so it's for me like reading her, her, looking at the 1880s and looking at sort of the dead ends of certain types of plots. Like there isn't a happy marriage really in the book. Um, what what are the options for an Agnes? And I love that they me- mentioned Washington Square, the Henry James novel, um, because in that novel uh, there's there's a young woman with, you know, who has an inheritance and, but she's dull looking, she's plain looking, and everyone knows it and talks about it endlessly, how plain she is. And she gets courted by this man, Morris Townsend, um, and they get engaged. And her father knows that he's just doing it for the money. Um, So he takes her away for a year, but they continue to write to each other and, you know, they, she's completely in love with him. And when she comes back, He breaks it off without any explanation. He's been actually living in her house with with her aunt, completely breaks it off, no explanation. She's completely heartbroken, but she goes on and lives a life. And she, she never marries, but she does all this charitable work and she has a full life. And at the end they meet and he tries to like, he actually in a way tries to be with her, um, and she won't, she, she, she's finished. No, no, she won't even have a friendship with him. But they were talking about that book, you know, at the dinner table. And, um, you know, the men are all just commenting like, you know, she's like a fire poker or something? Dole is a, what, I've forgotten the exact, you know, but, um, you know, that you have to, that she's just not colorful enough. And mm. I just wonder about Kate O'Brien, like looking at what are the plot options and how do you yeah. write a novel for women um, that offers something else.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think this is 1934 in conversation with 1880. And uh, uh, part of the reason for 1880, of course, is that there's no cure for syphilis in 1880. And so that you, you have to have him incurable for, for the plot to work. Otherwise, the old woman in the bed is, you know, she's having fantasy. So he ha- it has to be incurable. But also I think she wants to get a sort of stability in, in, in the family that comes before the Land Act's, it comes before the fall of Parnell. So we can't have that argument. You know, Aunt Dante, who will appear in James Joyce, having big arguments about Parnell. Parnell here is still a figure of wonder. And there's a lovely historical thing where people are still puzzled by what he looks like. And that was how he could function. In other words, it's before newspaper photography. Was, so that people, Parnell could travel to Brighton. To, um, you know, to see um and you know um mrs o'shea without people knowing he was parnell which is an, for us an extraordinary idea but but she 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 knows this and puts it in because that's what the conversation is about is he tall is he small what yeah. does, is what does parnell what's he like to see and the other thing is that that the um that the Asian nation, she looks at what's coming out that year and it's really important i think that it's not just the washington square is coming out, um, that they're, they're not reading the book, they're reading it being serialized in the Cornhill Magazine where it was serialized. In other words, they're, they're, they're full of that business of high culture, what, what, does, the, what does the daughter sing? She doesn't say, like I, if I were doing it, I would have singing one of Moore's melodies. And, you know, no, it's a Schumann yeah. song. And they all, the doctor knows the German, but, you know, the German is being mentioned regularly as though we too are in on this business. And it's a way of trying to wash Ireland free of a whole lot of shandos, of, yeah, yeah. of, you know, yeah. the famine, of, of its later history of the fall of Parnell, of the church being questioned, of anti-clericalism, that all these things just don't have to be there because the novel is being set in 1880. And, but because it's 1934, then you can throw in, the marriage plot is not possible now. In 1934, this is being questioned. I mean, I mean the, you know, it's interesting that Kate O'Brien reviewed early Samuel Beckett really favorably, uh, you know, that, that it wasn't as though she was, she was somehow in a different world to the world of Samuel Beckett writing Murphy. She reviewed that book in London, and so she's absolutely alert to the fact that she's subverting a tradition in the novel, yeah. which is that no, there's no, not only will, is, is there no happy marriage in the book, but there won't be one. Yeah, uh, you know, and and um, and so um, it is 1934 uh, as much as it's uh, as it's 1880, I think, in the you know in the but well, there's a dialogue between the two.
1: Yeah, um, Ava Walsh talks about um, in her. Books that it's like that she brings in a Trojan. It's like she sneaks in a Trojan horse, with because of you know that she brings under the civility and grace of her prose. She's bringing sneaking in like all these other things that are that do subvert or um, to, uh, dissent. Um So you know whether it's adultery, uh, lesbianism, in 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 um as music as music and as music as, and splendor. splendor. Um, venereal disease uh, you know I don't know what you call loving your brother-in-law whatever whatever that is <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: multiple things <laughs>
0: it's not recommended <laughs> in this book ever, is it? <laughs> uh, um, anyway Una thank you very much for thank coming you, thank and thank you very you, much for you. coming and, and uh, yeah.